Colossians chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who was a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Period. Get used to these Pauline run-on sentences. Because especially as we go into the, the bulk now of the prison letters of Paul, there are many of these. Where he starts and does not stop for several verses... I mean, think about this. We basically have covered eight verses of reading, and there have only been two sentences so far. And this is typical of Paul, these apostolic streams of inspiration. Imagine being Timothy, who's writing all this down. You know, his hand's cramping, and he's trying to keep up. Now, Timothy is probably the amanuensis, that is, the secretary. But while both Paul and Timothy are named right out of the gate, they are not the subject of this letter. Neither is the church. Christ is supreme. Paul has already used the title Christ five times. Over and over and over, Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, Christ Himself, He uses this this word, Christ. And if you've never stopped to think about the moniker of Messiah, perhaps we should. That Christ, Christos in the Greek, is from the Greek word Creo, which is literally to dab, to smear, or to anoint. Because Christ means the anointed one. But the Hebrew equivalent is Mashach, where we get Mashiach. And Mashach also means to anoint, to dab, or to, to smear, specifically with anointing oil. So we have the anointed one here, the one spoke of in all of the prophetic scripture, the Mashiach, now the Christ. He's the subject, and of course he is the core of Christianity. Now you might think that's redundant. Christ is the core of Christianity. But he must be. What's surprising is when Christians lose the core. When we get distracted to other things. Romans 5.17, listen to this, says, Faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Literally, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word Christ. Word there is rima, the spoken word. Faith comes by hearing the spoken word Christ. And I believe that is exactly what Paul is saying. Not a multiplicity of words that are spoken, but the word, the moniker, the title, Jesus, the Christ. And so Paul will say in Colossians 4, 3, Pray for us that God will open to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. I don't know of anything that elevates the human soul or encourages the human spirit more than looking at Christ Jesus. 
And that's exactly what Paul does in this letter and what we're about to do. Now, before we get there, I began to talk about this a little bit on Sunday, but I thought I'd give you a little instruction on the letters of Paul. If you've never thought about the organization of those letters, when they were written, why they were written, let me give it to you very simply. If the dates that I'm going by are correct, and I'm pretty sure they are, now there's some disagreement, so don't lock this in stone, but, but pretty close, the dates of his letters and the subject or the themes of his letters uh, are, the, are all similar. In other words, he, he, it's like he's releasing these batches of theology these letters of, of information. The theological similarity is striking. Now beginning from the latest uh, to the earliest letters of Paul, the latest letters that Paul wrote would be at around 63 to 66 AD. And those letters we call the ecclesiastical letters. They are letters that have to do with the church, the ecclesia. So these ecclesiastical letters are 1 Timothy, then Titus, then 2 Timothy. Then, moving back a little bit further, in around 63, we could say there's a standalone letter, the Hebraical letter. And that's the letter to the Hebrews. My opinion, Paul wrote it. My opinion is that Paul wrote it in Hebrew, which is why it reads differently in the Greek than some of the other letters of Paul. But the theology is absolutely Paul. So, Hebrews, around 63. We've got Ecclesiastical, the church... Hebraical, then 62 AD, which is where we are right now in terms of our Bible study, and that is the Christ. These are the Christological letters. And they all follow the same theme, Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians. We are about to sit in the presence of Christ, looking at the description of Christ and how Christ Jesus moves in our lives, affects our lives. I mean, if if you're a Christian, this is where to be. The Christological letters of Paul all having to do with the Christ, 62 A.D. Now we already did Philemon, and that's the other standalone letter, the personal letter from Paul to Philemon. That was also in 62. So you have ecclesiastical, then you have hebraical, then you have Christological, and then you have personal. Okay? You can call Paul out. And then, at 57 to 58, so now we're going a little bit further back in time, soteriological, from the word soteriology, which is a really fancy and theological way to say salvation. These are, the soteriological letters are the letters of the cross. That is 1 Corinthians, Galatians, 2 Corinthians, and Romans. And they all came from Paul around 57 to 58. The soteriological (laughs) letters of Paul. Just go, you know, uh, the church, the Christ, the cross. Those are good categories. And then finally, the earliest letters that Paul wrote, which I find interesting. The first letters of Paul, all the way back to about 52 to 53 A.D., the eschatological letters... That is the letters of the second coming. So that classifies all of Paul, and, and that's First and Second Thessalonians. So you can go all the way back to, you know, around 65, what did I say, 63 to 66, and you've got the church. Those letters, First Timothy, Titus, Second Timothy. Then you have Hebrews. Then you have the Christ, Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians. Then you've got Philemon. Then you have the cross, 
1 Corinthians, Galatians, 2 Corinthians, Romans. And then finally you have the second coming, 1 and 2 Thessalonians. And what's nice about this is it's recorded, so you can go back and listen online and write it all down in, in sequence later, if you'd like to do that. All of these letters, and here's the key, they are all centered on Jesus Christ. Every one. And with Colossians, we now launch into the Christological letters of Paul that focus on the nature of Christ. Why does that matter? Why do we really have to understand the nature of Jesus? Well, it affects how we approach Him. I started to hint at this also on Sunday. If we look at Jesus only as Yeshua, the Nazarene, the Galilean rabbi, you know, the one who calls himself our friend and, and our brother even, If that's the limit to which we understand Jesus, then we strip Him of divinity. We miss the Christ nature of Jesus and who He truly is. That's what we get in Colossians, that Christ nature. Christ is God. Therefore, worthy of all honor, all praise, and all obedience. Revelation chapter 5 verse 12, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The Christ who is God. Now, this letter to the church at Colossae is also what we call polemical. That is, it is passionately argued. And here's the basic outline. As we go through Colossians, we'll do chapter 1 where Paul argues for the character of Christ. In chapter 2, Paul argues against the confusion of Colossae. And then finally, in chapters 3 and 4, he argues for the Christian life. And that's where we get really practical, how knowing Jesus as the Christ impacts our everyday Christian life. So again, chapter 1, the character of Christ. Chapter 2, the confusion of Colossae. And chapters 3 and 4, Paul argues for the Christian life. And I have good news for you. Those are all the lists that I'm going to give you tonight. Okay. Paul begins with his usual thanksgiving. He gives his normal greeting. And then he goes into thankful appreciation for his recipients. But this is different for Colossae. I mean, he's thankful later on for Ephesus. Ephesians 1.16, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Thankful for the church at Rome, he says in Romans 1.8, First, I thank my God through Christ Jesus for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. But he is thankful here for a church of a fellowship of people he has never met. He's never gotten face to face with this group. How do you know he never met them? Well, Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face. So Colossians and Laodicea and perhaps Hierapolis, these were three churches in Southwest Asia that hadn't seen Paul. Oh, they knew about him. But in the case of this letter, we know that Epaphras was brought to the Lord by Paul and then he goes back to Colossae and he planted the church there. But Paul's thankful for this group of people just the same, and it's an excellent pattern for us to follow. Listen again to the reason and the order of Paul's thanksgiving. Verse 3, he says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Pause just for a moment. How do you pray always? 
which I love Paul, he says pray always, pray without ceasing, pray constantly. How do you do that? It's conversational prayer. It means wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you can be praying. You can be in communication with God. You don't have to set aside two hours over here to pray, although that's good. And in-depth and focused, you know, what we might call soaking prayer or, or a, a season of prayer, that's important too. But don't miss the fact that you can be constant in prayer with the Lord. And and Paul says, we always are giving thanks. We're always praying for you. Verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Do you see it? Faith in Christ, agape love for all the saints, hope laid up for them in heaven. These are the three dynamics of a church that is Christ-centered. The Christ-centered church is all about love, is all about hope, is all about faith. As Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 13, 13, faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. And yet you will find in a church that is focused on, that is centered around the person of Jesus Christ, you should find all three at work, all three dynamic, all three moving in the body. Something else we should see in a church that is Christ-centered, and that is fruitfulness. The fruitfulness of the gospel. He continues on and says, Of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, and has been since the day you heard of it, and understood the grace of God and truth. I mean, Paul's describing an explosion of the gospel. That's remarkable to me. Because you realize that from Paul's first missionary journey to the writing of Colossians, his ministry was roughly as old as this church. 13, 14, maybe 15 years max since Paul and Barnabas were first sent out from Antioch. And in that short amount of time, Paul is able to make the claim, boom, the gospel has reached the whole world. Well, had it come to America? He's talking about the whole known world. It had gone out to all of the Roman world. It had covered, even that, even if it had only covered parts of the Middle East, even if it had just spread across Asia, it is stunning to realize what happened. How did that happen? How did that work? This worldwide phenomenon. How did God do it? And I love talking about this because it is so not the style of man. This is not how you do things. Okay, You don't send your son destined to die. That's not a good way to start a movement. you know. And then you don't send one or two or twelve guys and say, Alright boys, it's all yours. Especially those twelve. <laughs> and you don't send Paul... Just one man skirting across Asia. I mean, come on, Lord. Where's the angel army? Where's the massive... And yet, the gospel just started to spread and spread and spread. How? Listen carefully. Because it can happen right here, right now, on this island. The gospel spread through the dynamic work of the Holy Spirit, available to us today, and through the deliberate preaching of the gospel. That's how you spread the kingdom. There are all kinds of other things we can do. We talk about this often. You know my opinion about this. 
But we are here to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ, to speak the gospel. Now, Steve Armitage and I have been, have been having a, a conversation all week long about this via email, the back and forth, right? And, and it's been a great conversation. And, and it's at the same time that I'm spending all this, I'm, I'm processing and I'm thinking. And here, here's the question that we were discussing. Can you just be the gospel in love and action? And that really is a question that has filled the church. There are those of the social gospel, and they would say, be the gospel. Acts of service, love, kindness. You don't necessarily have to speak the name of Christ, but you need to do those things. And then there are those who are of the gospel gospel. Preach the word. Teach about Jesus. I think you know where I would fall. Not that the acts of service are not vitally important, and you know how important missions and benevolence and service work is in our fellowship. But please understand, here's this, in answer to the question, can you be the gospel? The old adage was attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Perhaps you've heard it, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. I hate to burst anyone's bubble, but Francis of Assisi probably never said that. In fact, it doesn't even show up as ascribed to him until well over 200 years after he died. So someone probably came along and said, boy, it'd be really cool if Francis said this. Or maybe he said something like it. And yet what's interesting is if you study the life of St. Francis of Assisi, he was a bold preacher of the gospel. He was a man of service, a man of action, a man of love, but he preached the gospel wherever he went. In fact, he was involved in a preaching order of the church. And can you imagine Paul wandering into a a village or a city or a township and just being the gospel? I'm just going to hang out and love people. Anybody can do that. That's what we have. We call it philanthropy. Anybody can show brotherly love. The gospel is what makes the difference. The gospel is what matters. Christ Jesus himself is called what? The word. Not the act. He's called the word because the word is what gets into us. And teaching far more than miracles, which he did. Far more than healing, which of course he did. Teaching epitomized the ministry of Jesus. And I'm not trying to say that just to support or bolster my own ministry. That, that's not the point. I don't do this to, to kind of you know prove myself and, and to promote my own job security. I'm saying what the Word tells us, and that is, Romans 10.13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And see, here's the thing with the social gospel. If it's all acts of service and no mention of Jesus, if it's no teaching or preaching of the Word, then what's the difference? You have full bellies who are still going to hell. What good really have we done? Oh, but, but, we, but we provided. We did this. We did that. Great. But did you tell them about Jesus? And if we haven't shared Jesus, then we really haven't done anything of any permanence. Paul says, Romans ten fifteen, How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Let me tell you something that Steve and I are talking about here, and I probably shouldn't because this probably should be talked about among the shepherds first before we come, but I'm going to do it. 
something we were talking about. We have got to be more intentional about sending our teens and 20-somethings on short-term missions to see if it will stick. We need to be more intentional as a church to sending out. Now, we have a few irons in the fire right now. There are actually two or three different people who are looking into life missions and focusing on that, and we are all in. But we need to do more of that as a church fellowship, the sending of the saints. And what's really exciting right now is if you talk to any of our mission guys, I mean, talk to Mike, talk to Steve. There are a ton of opportunities all of a sudden exploding in front of us, aren't there? I mean, stuff we haven't even talked about yet. It's just coming up right and left. Local opportunities, international opportunities to serve. But here's the deal, and I want to make this very clear. If Christ is not named, if Christ is not the focal point of the work, I am not interested. Because there's all kinds, as I said, of things we can do, but if we're not doing it in the name of Christ, for the sake of Christ, and preaching Christ, then our mission is lost. And Jesus said this. Listen to what He said. Mark 14, 7. You always have the poor with you. And whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have Me. Let's preach Jesus. Let's be about the Christ. Who changed your life? Someone acting in service? Or Jesus Christ? I think we know the answer. So preach the Word. Preach the Word. In season and out of season. It doesn't matter if your name's Timothy and it does not matter if you're a pastor. Preach the Word. Tell people about Jesus. Christ should be named and often. And ask yourself, do I name Christ through the week? With my friends? Do I, do I, how often do I talk about? And if you're one who, who says, boy, it's, it's really not, not as often as I would like, okay, then pray. I mean, it's that simple. Lord, empower me to speak Your name. Give me opportunity to speak Your name. Give me boldness to speak Your name. I guarantee His Spirit will do it. Next thing you know, you're going to be speaking Jesus all over the place and you won't be able to stop yourself. Well, this is like Epaphras, by the way, who, as verse 7 tells us, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ, on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. So Epaphras is exactly the example we're talking about. He heard the word of Christ from Paul, and he went back to Colossae, and he preached the word of Christ. He shared the gospel. And a church was born out of that. Epaphras, I guess you could say he had beautiful feet. Because how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And again in verse 8, Paul says not only did he teach you Christ, but he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. I really like that phrase. Your love in the Spirit. Because it's a love truly that is dependent upon the fruit of the Spirit. We're talking about a love that goes beyond us. A love like Paul has for a group of people he's never met. A love that Epaphras has for this group of people in his hometown. This, this passionate love. And by the way, Epaphras is gossiping. But it's good gossip. Is there such a thing? Oh yeah, when you're informing people about someone else's love in the Spirit, it's a good thing. If you're talking about someone behind their back and it's good, and it's encouraging, and it's uplifting, do it, man. That's the kind of gossip we could use more of. Did you hear... Did you hear what Susie did last week? Oh, gather around, i got to tell you. She prayed for someone. 
share the good gossip of what's going on, of what you know about each other in the name of the Lord. Now, He informed us of your love in the Spirit. We come to another very rich run-on here. Verse 9. Is that right? Yeah, verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of life. Period. (laughs) Now... I did that on purpose. I am not making fun of the letter of Paul. But far too often we read Paul's letters that way. We blast through them and go, wow, it's one of those Pauline sentences and there's a lot of good spiritual stuff there, I'm sure. Unpack it. Take time to go line by line and say, Paul, what what are you saying here? He says right at the beginning, we have not ceased to pray for you. Now, get this. That's weird. Because don't you usually pray for those who are sick or hurting or in need or struggling? Doesn't that more often characterize our prayers? And yet Paul prays for them because of their faith and their hope and their love. He prays for them because of the dynamics of the fellowship that are at play. And the things he prays for them are are remarkable here. He doesn't mention, in fact, I defy you to find Paul praying in the negative. Or at least in the self-serving. He's always praying with courage and boldness and joy and thanksgiving and and how the people are, are living their lives. He prays because this is a dynamic fellowship and they are going like gangbusters. He'll do the same thing for Ephesus. When he prays for Ephesus, he says, 619, uh, Ephesus 6.19, Pray on my behalf, that the utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make, to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, and that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now, wait a minute. Paul's already bold. I mean, was any more, anyone more bold than Paul? So why is he asking them to pray for him? I mean, it's like me sitting up here and saying, hey, listen, pray for my teaching on Sunday morning. Pray for the the teaching I'm going to give on Sunday morning. Well, Rick, you're going to give the teaching whether we pray for you or not. Pray that I'm I'm biblical. Well, Rick, what are you going to teach? Well, probably the latter part of Colossians chapter 1. Well, then of course you're going to be biblical. It seems like a, a ridiculous thing, and yet this is where the power of God really moves in and among us when we are praying in the positive. When we are praying the will of God. When we are praying for the continuance of the gospel. That's what Paul's asking for. Man, make me bold so I will not stop doing, yeah, what I'm already doing. But that I will continue to be bold in it. What I'm saying is this. Prayer is more than cheering the faint-hearted. Prayer is cheering on the victorious. And we could use more victory prayer. 
We could use more prayer having to do with the encouragement of the saints. He says in verse 9 continuing, this is his prayer, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. In all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Man, that's straight out of the Holy Spirit playbook. Listen to these phrases. Isaiah 11.2. verse I've quoted a lot. It's one of my favorites. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on Him. Who? Mashiach. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and strength. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And here Paul says, I want you to be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He's just praying the Holy Spirit. And he's praying that the Spirit will bring these things, this this revelation for this church. Why is Paul praying these things? Verse 10. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's what we want here. He's not praying that Aristarchus will get over his ankle sprain. Although he could. Don't misunderstand, that would be fine. He's not praying that Gaius will get over his runny nose. You know? Or that Romulus will, I don't know, no longer be on Star Trek. He's not praying these things. He's praying knowledge, wisdom, understanding. Things we need as followers of Jesus Christ. And things that are encouraging and go to our victory. That we might walk worthy. Please God. Bear fruit. And increase in the knowledge of God. Man, pray. Do you want to increase in the knowledge of God? Then pray. You ask. You just say, Lord, give me more of your knowledge. Give me more wisdom. Give me more understanding. These are great things to pray. Pray the character of the Spirit. Isaiah 11.2 is a verse that everyone ought to memorize because it describes the nature of the Spirit of God. Pray that. I want wisdom and understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, and fear of the Lord. Father, I pray that. And by the way, I do. That's one of my prayers. So you can't have it. Verse, Verse 11. Verse 11. Strengthened, he continues, with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Joyously giving thanks to the Father who has, watch this, qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. Man, that's just... I love just reading that and hearing that and, and, and processing that. This whole thing is a powerful, Spirit-inspired prayer that you can pray. Verses 9-12, through 12, you can pray that for yourself. I would encourage you to do it. Pray that God does this in you. As Paul was praying it for Colossae, man, pray it for yourself. Pray it for your brothers and sisters. Pray it for this fellowship. Ask the Lord to do this. And again, I make the comparison. Paul is not asking for temporary release from pains, hurts, or self-focused needs. What he prays for is steadfastness and patient endurance to accept and deal with all the hardships and the difficulties of life. And then focus on those. He focuses on the victory. And now, buckle up, because this is all about Jesus Christ. Verse 13. For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. In other words, 
The whole reason I can pray this for you is because of what Jesus did. If Jesus hadn't done what Paul describes in 13 and 14, he couldn't pray any of these things. Anyone seeking these things prior to what Jesus did, you're, you're kind of struggling along. At best, you in the flesh try to follow God. But now because of what Jesus did, think about what He did. He transferred us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Now, David Guzik in his commentary on this said the following, The power of darkness, the domain of darkness, he says, lulls us to sleep. Isn't that true? Kind of makes me wonder, Rachel, test this wherever you are, if we should just leave the lights up and worship. Because sometimes I come in on a Wednesday night and I'm just like, No, I'm not. Once the worship starts, but man, doesn't darkness just kind of make you sleepy? Hey, we have a natural thing in our brains that starts to fire off sleep juice. That's the technical name for it. When the lights go down, that's how God created us. Well, darkness lulls us to sleep. And the power of darkness is also skilled, he writes, at concealment. The power of darkness afflicts and depresses man. All we need in Washington State is a good sunny day, and we're all the happiest people anywhere. (laughs) The power of darkness, he writes, can also fascinate us. And he says the power of darkness emboldens some men. But we were transferred out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Check this out. Domain is the word exousia. It simply means it's jurisdictional power. If you have exousia, and exousia can be both positive and negative. It's just a word that means regional or jurisdictional power. And we've been taken out of the jurisdictional power of darkness and put into the kingdom, the basileia, which means rule and reign over all jurisdiction. See what Paul just said? We've been pulled out of this little local power and put into the kingdom, and now we have power in the kingdom over all domains. We have just been brought into the great power of the Lord, of Jesus, rule and reign. Spurgeon put it this way, he said, Beloved, while we are still tempted by Satan, we're not under his power. He is not our king. He has no rights over us. We were taken out of his jurisdiction, and now we belong to the Christ, the Son of God. We are members of that kingdom, under that power. And Jesus put it this way, John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death and into life. Out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved Son, as Paul writes. And so we come now to the Christ hymn that we looked at on Sunday. Ten amazing descriptions in Paul's Christology. Let me just read it through and we'll look at each one of these. I know we did a little bit on Sunday. There's more to tell you. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. 
He's also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place or preeminence in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Ten descriptions, and you can just follow them through in your Bibles. I just I put a little number by each one in my in my Bible. The first one is in verse 15. He is the image of God. And we talked about that on Sunday. As Hebrews 1 2 says, the exact representation of his nature. He is the image, the icon, if you will. And then he goes on and says he's also the firstborn of all creation. John 14, verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? (laughs) He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? I mean, it's it's a true oive moment in Jesus' teaching. How can you say this, Philip? Have I not been with you so long that you don't understand? I mean, look at me, Jesus could say. Look at me, Philip. Yeah? Here's the Father. (laughs) The exact representation of His nature in form, in substance, the visible presentation of the invisible God. You want to see God, you look at the Christ. You look at Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.4, Paul said, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Now, I love this because Sunday morning I said, then how can he be the firstborn? You know, if he's the image of God, if he's God, then he's always existed. So how can he be the firstborn? Then I said, come back Wednesday night and I'll tell you. Which is always fun to say. And especially because Luke comes up to me afterwards and goes... And I'm gonna I'm gonna try and mimic you, my friend. <laughs> Pastor Rick, you gotta throw me a bone. <laughs> you gotta explain this to me. You can't make me wait until Wednesday. I'm like, why are you so special that you think no? And so I told him what I'm gonna tell you about the firstborn. Jehovah's Witnesses and other cults will say, see, he's created. He's a firstborn. Therefore, the firstborn of all creation means that he was created first out of all other created things. And that is what I would call theology. I'm going to write that down. It's a good word. Theology. It's theology that is deeply flawed. He's the firstborn. He was the first one born. No, he's not the first to be born. He's the firstborn. And there's a huge difference, especially if you put on your Jewish thinking cap. He is, in the Greek, the prototokos. Prototokos means he has superiority. He has preeminence. He has all the rights, privileges, and authority of the father, of the head of the household. That's the firstborn. And in a Jewish household, the firstborn son has all of that. He is equal to the father. The rest of the children are not. Firstborn is. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's not talking about Jesus as created being. How can he be the image of God and also then be the firstborn? Well, because he looks like God. No, 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 no. no. He's the prototokos. 
Not created. This is not referring to the Bethlehem birth. It is not physical. It is positional. Jesus has the position of the firstborn. Why does it work that way? Because God is showing us relationship. He brings Jesus. He comes into the world as Jesus, positionally the Son of God. And for a Jew to call Him the Son of God was for a Jew to call Him God. That's why they were so upset. He kept saying, I'm the Son of God. They heard Him say He's the Son of God. And they said, whoa, you can't say you're the Son of God. Because to the Jewish mind, that means He's claiming oneness with God in all authority, just like a firstborn. And the Bible presents the firstborn that way. Back in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. God tells Moses, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Now, Israel wasn't born first. You know, in fact, Jacob wasn't even born first, was he? Esau was born first. And then Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. So God's firstborn was actually the secondborn. Are you following? But God considered him his firstborn in right and in privilege. And he looked at Israel, his people, as his firstborn. And then in Psalm 87 or 89, verse 27, speaking of David, King David says, I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Speaking of David, positionally, because, hey, David was actually the eighthborn. He was not the firstborn of his father, Jesse. And yet God said that he's my firstborn. Rights, privileges, authority. And by the way, Psalm 89.27 is messianic. Because not only is it speaking of David, but it's talking about the coming son of David. God's true firstborn. As Jesus says in in Revelation 22.16, I, Jesus, am the root I came before and the descendant. I came after David on the bright and morning star. That's the firstborn. In Jewish lineage, firstborn was heir apparent. Again, positional authority, the same authority of the father, head of the household. Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, verse 22, All things have been handed over to me by my father. And no one knows who the son is except the father, and who the father is except the son, and anyone to whom the son wills to reveal him. I mean, this relationship is amazing, and that is the firstborn over all creation. The third descriptor in this hymn, the Creator. This starts to get really big. Because Jesus, wait, He's he's the Creator? Understand, this was written before the Gospel of John. John will come out and say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were created through Him. But that hadn't been written yet. So when Paul lays this out, when this letter arrives at Colossae, can you imagine how mind-blowing this was for the people to hear this kind of thing? He is the Creator. Both of visible things, and I love it, he says, and of invisible things. So Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord, And our God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. And so that's again visible and invisible which includes all angelic power. Good or bad. Good or evil. 
And then he uses four words there in verse 16 to describe all of these invisible and visible powers. Four different words, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. Now just real quickly, and you can reference this later if you want to, thrones is thronos. A thronos in the Greek is thought to denote high heavenly beings. In fact, the rabbis teach that the, the thrones, the thronos, these are those who are just a step down from archangel. So high beings in the spirit realm. Dominions, we've already talked about, well, we haven't talked about dominions, we've talked about authorities. Dominions is kyriotis, lordships, where the word kyrios, you know, lord is. So kyriotis is lordship over realms. Now that can be visible, you know, you've got uh, kings, presidents, you know, rulers over realms here on earth, but you also have rulers over realms like the prince of Persia in Daniel chapter 9, a spirit being. An angelic being that in that case was evil. And then you have rulers and authorities, which is arche and exousia, and both refer to limited earthly and spiritual powers. They have limits. They can only go so far. They can only do so much. Remember, you were transferred from the domain of darkness, limited, into the kingdom of the beloved Son, which is over everything. That is remarkable power. And so now Paul's saying, and all spiritual powers were created by Christ, and all evil spiritual powers were defeated by Christ. At the cross, Colossians 2.15, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, one of my favorite verses, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him, I call it the Monty Python verse. Because they were disarmed. What can they do? Have you ever fought a disarmed knight? What are you going to do? Bleed on me. You know, I mean, that's, that's what it is. They're disarmed. When you read that verse, you say, okay, well, if they're disarmed, why is there still evil in the world? They're disarmed. They're not dormant. They're still able to wreak havoc. They can still cause problems. And yeah, they can still bleed on you. They can still cause problems. But they do not have authority over you. They cannot get a hold of you. They've been disarmed. Jesus is also, verse 17, this is the fourth in the list of ten, He is the preeminent one. Preeminent? It goes right back to firstborn. He is the one in first place. He is, number five, I love this, the one who holds it all together. Verse 17. He holds it all together. And I believe that is absolutely physical as well as spiritual. Let me give you more on this. Sunday I mentioned what science calls the strong force. I went back and did my homework because I was a little unclear on it on Sunday. wasn't thinking it through. There's a power that is literally being kept inside the smallest particles of creation. This is from LiveScience.com. And it says the strong force was first proposed to explain why atomic nuclei do not fly apart. What do you mean? They should. Atomic nuclei should blow up. There is no explanation in science as to why they hold together. Why is that? They write, it seemed that they would do so due to the repulsive electromagnetic force being between the positively charged protons located in the nucleus. Have you ever taken two magnets? And, and put positive to positive and try to push them together and they pop apart. That's what's in the middle of the nucleus of the atom. 
They're positively charged. There is no reason they should stay together, and science cannot figure it out. So they call it strong force or gluons. I said, the brilliance here is so remarkable to me. They write, it was later found that the strong force not only holds nuclei together in the atom, but it's also responsible for binding together the subatomic quarks that make up hadrons. What's that? The quark is actually the smallest known particle, even smaller than the nuclei of the atom. And within the quark, quark, you've got these protons pushing against each other, and they should blow up. Everything that we see around us, all the matter that we are made up of, should be exploding. It doesn't. Why? Because he holds it all together. Oh, Rick, you're just spiritualizing science. No, I'm, I'm just speaking truth. He is the one who holds it. Strong force that defies science. Coulomb's law says like charges repel each other. It is a known fact. It, you know what's funny about strong force? It is one of four um, forces that they talk about in science, one of them being gravity. They're saying it's something that has the same kind of power as, as gravity itself. Well, listen to this. Listen to what Peter wrote. And see if perhaps Peter, the Galilean fisherman, might have been on to something. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 7. He writes, By His Word, the present heavens and earth, that is all matter, And when he's talking about the heavens and earth, he's talking about the universe and everything that's in it. He says, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of godly men. That used to make me really uncomfortable when I was a kid. When's that going to happen? Talk about global warming. (laughs) You know, it's all being kept, reserved for fire. And then listen to what he says in verse 10 of 2 Peter chapter 3. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. What should happen is exactly that. The elements, the word is stoichia in the Greek, and it speaks of the building blocks. The very elements themselves should blow apart. And they will. When is that? Well, I I can't say for certain. I can only guess because it hasn't happened yet. But Revelation chapter 20 tells us that the great throne judgment, all heaven and earth fled away and there was no place to be found for them. My assumption is that's when Jesus lets go. And all that strong nuclear force that is truly the hand of God lets go and everything blows apart and all of the elements, all the way down to the most elemental, is destroyed by fire. But let me ask you this personally. Do you ever get tired of trying to hold it all together? (laughs) In your life? Heads spinning? Troubles coming? How do I do this, Lord? Jesus would say to you and to me, I got it. Remember, I'm the one who holds it all together. Dude, if He can hold together a quark, then He can hold together a dork. (laughs) probably a good way to think about it he says trust me I will do this he says peace I leave with you my peace I give to you not as the world gives do I give to you do not let your heart be troubled nor let it be fearful I got this he holds it together and I love that 
Paul describes this back in Colossians as the one who is over all creation, and he starts with creation, and then he goes right into new creation, because the one who holds all creation together is also the one who holds the church together. And don't you know that if it's left up to us, we're going to destroy this thing. We're trying really hard, you know, with all the denominations and divisions and differences, and you know, instead of just opening the Bible and just sitting there with Jesus... And he's holding it together. Here we are 2,000 years later and the church is still marching along. He holds it together. He is, verse 18, the head. And specifically this is referring to of the church. Verse 18, the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning. Now in context, it's not just saying he's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning of all things. No, he's the beginning of the church. And I hope you get that, because I have missed that for years. He's not just the beginning. He's the beginning of the church. He was the first man in. First one in the pew was Jesus. Walked out of the gates of death in His resurrection, establishing the church in and of Himself. Everywhere that Jesus went in those 40 days on earth was church. You know, they had church every time they saw Jesus. And then, of course, He ascends to heaven and the Holy Spirit falls on the Apostles, Acts chapter 2, and the church as we know it was born, but Jesus is the head and the beginning. And know this, if you have a problem with the church, you have a problem with Christ Jesus. Because He's the one who established it. Oh, but I've been hurt by the church. Of course you have, because we're humans. And we hurt each other. And we try not to, but... I'll tell you, go right back to where a church is Christ-centered. There is faith, hope, and love. The Christ-centered church is a church that, well, hopefully isn't going to hurt people. But even if you have been hurt by church, even if you've been you know, run over by a pastor, even if you've been harmed one way or another, maybe it was even just your perception of a situation. Maybe it really wasn't what you thought, but it all went south. Why does it all go south, by the way? Why doesn't it all go north? Canada's north. It should all go north. (laughs) Anyway, the church was created by Jesus. This is His deal. Why am I at 52 still involved with the church as I have been all my life? Because this is a Jesus thing. It belongs to Christ. He's the head. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. And again, now we're talking about church. We're not talking firstborn as in positional authority, but He literally is the first one born from the dead. What about Jairus' daughter? What about the widow's son of Nain? What about Lazarus? They all died and were resurrected. Yeah, and they died again. You know, one funeral is enough. Those three people would have two funerals. Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead, the first to die, to raise to life, and to live forever. Never to die again. That is Jesus Christ. And verse 18 tells us He is in first place. Press in on this one, brothers and sisters. We all ought to press in on this one. Is Christ in first place in my life? Man, some days, yeah. Sometimes, yeah. But you know who tends to sit in first place in my life more than anybody else? Me. But He's first place. He's the preeminent one. 
And the more we can center ourselves around Him rather than ourselves, the more we will find the true joy of the Lord. The more we will see and understand and know the Christ. And verse 19, he says, and this is just, I mean, if it wasn't enough, Paul goes on and says, and it was the Father's good pleasure, or literally, it was the good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. The translators add the word the Father's good pleasure because it's kind of assumed, but really it's the good pleasure. That is, it was the pleasure of the Godhead. The pleasure of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All the pleasure of divinity was that the fullness would dwell in Him. He has all the fullness of God. Now please don't accept that as a theological reality. You know, we've talked about it. Yeah, He's the fullness of God. Jesus is God. I get that. No. He, in Him, all the fullness dwells. That word dwells is not the same word that, that John uses when he says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the word skenuo, and skenuo means tabernacled. The Word became flesh and, and pitched His tent among us. Tabernacled among us. Temporarily put on flesh to live among us. But the word that is used here of the fullness of God dwelling in Him is katoiketo, and it is a permanent dwelling. The fullness of God permanently dwelling in Jesus Christ. And John does refer to that in John 1.16. He says, for of His... This is, okay, mind-blowing. For of His fullness we have all received. And grace upon grace... Now that's not to say, don't misunderstand, it's not to say that we have now become divine when we give our life to Jesus. No, but His divine Spirit dwells in us. The very fullness of God now dwells in the believer. That to me is, I mean, talk about blowing apart. That should blow us up right there. The fullness of His fullness we have received. And Paul agrees with this theology. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, he will write, In Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in Him you have been made complete. Full. Verse 20. By the way, we're not going to do all of chapter 1 tonight, just in case you were wondering. Verse 20. And through Him... To reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And the fact that he's talking about the blood of Christ after telling us all of that is stunning. His blood? Wait a minute. You're talking about God. Yeah. God who bled out for us. Christ, who has, as I said on Sunday, all supremacy, all sufficiency, and and all substance in the fullness of God, also was Jesus, who was sacrificed for all. And underscore this, not to reconcile God to man, but to reconcile man to God. I say man because I really didn't expect any of you ladies to show up tonight, but you did. Verse 21. Quickly. (laughs) And although you were formerly alienated 
and hostile in mind in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him in at holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Because the only path to the presence of God is through the blood of Jesus. You cannot get there any other way. He had to die the perfect sacrifice so that we could come into the presence of God through that blood. Let me just pause and ask you, what does that do to your sin life? When you realize that you have come into the presence of God by treading through the blood of Christ, does it maybe make you think twice about doing things that are in rebellion to God? Things that you know are not pleasing to Him? I mean, it should make us just shudder. I've walked through the blood. I've said this before, I guarantee, if we could stand before Jesus and see Him on the cross, very few of us would immediately go out and sin. It was very difficult when I saw The Passion of the Christ, the movie, and that was just a movie. It's far worse than the movie. But when I saw The Passion of Christ, I think for a week, I was really holy. (laughs) You don't want to be in rebellion to Jesus when you've walked through the blood. And we must be reconciled. Again, reconciled is to be brought into harmony with God. It is not that God is brought into harmony with us. Well, finally He's satisfied all of my questions, so I guess I'll believe in Him. No. No, it's that you are brought into harmony with Him. Praise God, through Jesus, He meets us where we are. But it's so that He can bring us to where He is. By making us pure and clean and righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, we can't ignore this next thing. I'm just going to do a couple more verses and we'll stop tonight. But another elephant has now snuck into the foyer. If you're here Sunday, we already talked about one elephant. But this elephant is actually bigger than a shack. Larger. And the elephant I'm talking about is a great, big, if. If. We've all been reconciled to God through His blood on the cross. Verse 23, If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. I knew it! I knew there was a catch! You can be saved, you can be sanctified, you can be whole, but if you go to church, if you hold it together, wait, he's the one who holds it together. So what is this if? Knew there was going to be a catch, and there is. Paul says very clearly, there's no getting around this, it's reconciliation if we continue in faith. And Douglas Moo writes, the central concern of this letter is to encourage the Colossian Christians and us by extension to resist the blandishments of the false teachers and to continue to grow in Christ. Christ is the focus, but he's writing this letter to say to the Christians at Colossae, stay focused on Christ. Make sure he remains central in your faith. And what I believe he's saying here is we must pay attention to our reconciliation. Pay attention 
to your reconciliation. What do you mean? A wealthy Arab was making his way through the wilderness. And he ran out of water and he began to get dry and parched. And the desert stretched on before him and the sun's bearing down and beating on him. And he comes up to a Jewish tie salesman in the middle of nowhere. And he says, water, water, I need water. And the Jewish tie salesman looks at him and says, do you want to buy a tie? No, you don't understand. I need water. I'm dying. I really think you want to buy a tie. Water, please, I beg of you. I don't want to buy a tie. I want water. And finally, the Jewish tie salesman said, well, 40 miles west, my family has an inn. They have water. And off the Arab goes, dragging himself through the desert. A week goes by, two weeks, and here he comes. Dragging himself across the desert floor again, back to the Jewish tie salesman. He says, water, please give me water. And the Jewish tie salesman said, didn't they let you in? They wouldn't let me in without a tie. (laughs) My new favorite joke right there. If he had just paid attention, if he had just bought the tie at the right time, he would have gotten the water. Listen, we would save ourselves a whole lot of dryness and thirst and headaches and heartache if we would just pay attention to our reconciliation. Now listen to me. Please get this. This does not in any way, shape, or form shatter the security of salvation in Jesus Christ. Christ is my eternal security. He is my salvation. But what Paul does here is he refuses to shy away from our responsibility in the Father's or to the Father's reconciliation. He provides the reconciliation. I am responsible now to that reconciliation. Meaning what? Meaning I continue in the faith. I mean, does it get any easier than that? Just continue in the faith. If indeed, he writes, you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast. Keep trusting in the Christ because he's the source of your salvation. Continue it. Keep the faith, man. Just keep the faith. If you keep the faith, there's no question. There's no concern. Jesus said in Luke 8.15, the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word. Note that they heard it. They weren't just treated well. They heard the word in an honest and good heart. They hold it fast and they bear fruit with perseverance. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 13, the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. And Paul, I believe, wrote in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, Christ is faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if... We hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. But Rick, that's still a catch. Listen, the only catch is His. The catch that He has made, we have been caught by Christ. You wouldn't be here tonight if you hadn't been caught by Christ. And He's a good fisherman. He doesn't throw you back. We have been caught. The catch is that we are in His hands. And Jesus said, John chapter chapter 10, no one can snatch you out of My hand. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. I got gotcha. you. Remember? He holds all things together. 
When was the last time you held together two angry protons? He's got you. He won't throw you back. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2 says, Indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. Guess what? Inasmuch and if are the same word. Little word in the Greek, ei. I don't even know how it's pronounced. I or E or A. Any one of those three would be good with me. Inasmuch as you do this. Both, by the way, are used, and Paul uses it here, I believe, with the positive inference. Okay, so read it again. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, it's not, you'll be saved, you don't blow it. That's the negative. No, it's positive. Inasmuch as you continue, and you will. You will. How do we know? Well, he's already told them of his confidence in their faith and hope and love. He's already described to them what he's heard of them, of their love in the Spirit. The if does not assume failure. It assumes victory in Jesus. My Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with His redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew Him. And all my love is due Him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. That is Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Father, thank You so much for Your Word to us tonight. I ask, Lord, only that You will embed this reality of Christ in us. Jesus Christ, would You stand before us. May we see You in Your glory. Even as John saw you in the Revelation, may we see you in your glory. And I pray, Father, as we continue in this letter together, that it will impact us in such a way that we can't help but just live for Christ. Be a people of Christ. And Lord Jesus, proclaim Christ to a lost and dying world. In Jesus' name, Amen.